You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Before we start, I want to thank all of the Weird Libertarians patrons for being a part of the show. You can find out all of the benefits of subscribing on Patreon at joinwallplus.com. That's W-A-L plus.com. You'll get bonus content, access to the complete archives. There's over a thousand shows that you can't get in the public feed, and you'll be supporting all of our great shows. Thank you especially to our $100 a month members, John Pusillo, Vincent Peichel, Lars Nordskog, Jake Dell, Matthew Durbin, Reinhold, Christy Avery, and Jason Doolittle. We also want to thank our main sponsor for this episode, uh, it is Iconic Insurance. 15% of Americans are left to find health insurance on their own. And even if you get health insurance from your employer that doesn't work for you, Matt Allen and Iconic Insurance can help you find the right insurance. Just head over right now and contact him at iconic-insurance.com slash libertarians. We'll put the link in the description if you can't remember that. But Matt is a longtime listener of this program and a great guy and a good friend of mine. So please go support him and reach out right now. Thank you, and now, let's get started with our show. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Chris Spangle, and I am excited to talk to one of my favorite guests. Last time she was here, we had such a great conversation. It was supposed to be a 20-minute conversation. I think we talked for almost an hour. Uh, always very interesting thoughts on different issues of privacy and individual rights. Her name is Leslie Corbley. She is a privacy policy analyst with the Libertas Institute in Lehigh, Utah. She covers current events and affairs related to privacy from the perspective of preserving individual rights and essential liberties. She's also a visiting fellow at AIER and a Young Voices contributor. And she is going to discuss with us today, I have had a hunch... For a very long time that the, especially through the pandemic you figured oh somebody in a high position within the government or congress or one of these you know alphabet agencies calls up somebody at one of the social media companies and says hey can you really put a, a tamp down on this and we have recently had a little bit of confirmation that that's exactly what has happened and so Leslie is here to talk with me today about that, and I uh, was reading, looking at the article, and I lost you. All right, there we are. Uh, Leslie, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be on. You know, we, we are on YouTube, and we stream on Facebook. I just want to say, you have the best backdrop. The lighting is great. You look fantastic. The camera is great. This is fantastic. I wish all our guests had this high-definition view. Well, I'm going to have to thank um, the Institute, the American Institute for Economic Research, for letting me use their media room. Uh, it's, it is fantastic out here, so I've much appreciated my stay. So really briefly, what is a visiting fellow and what are you doing down there in Georgia? So I'm actually up in Great Barrington in the Berkshires, uh, so Western Massachusetts is where I'm oh, at right, right now. Oh, that's right. They're not in – that's fee. <laughs> it's okay. 
<laughs> it's okay. Uh, uh, yeah, so I am just study really spent a lot of time researching the issue of privacy and digging in to uh, you know various literature about about privacy, individual rights, uh, and uh, how technology overlaps with those things. And what have you learned? A lot. <laughs> so one of the uh, most interesting things I would say I learned would would be really digging into what the surveillance state in China looks like, because I think that can give us a great idea of how technology can currently be weaponized against a, popu- a large population in the 21st century. So that was really interesting to read. Uh, it's called Surveillance State, written by two Wall Street journalists um, from the Wall Street Journal. Like two of them yeah. wrote that book and it's been really fantastic to see what they were able to dig up and uh, investigate in relation to how surveillance systems and technology can be weaponized. And there's some some overlap uh, as it relates particularly to things like smart cities. Think places like San Diego, San Francisco and Houston that are blanketing their entire uh, cities in these very high, high tech cameras that uh, law enforcement can access the footage of those. That's uh, essentially, to some degree, surveillance method. So yeah, that's we, one of the different types of things you see happening. I think the last time you were here, we touched on that a little bit. Um, the, I think one of the critiques from you know the the far right and far left, they like the alt right and the you know I don't know the mutualists. They almost always almost touch, uh, and one of their critiques is that the end of liberalism is China, and you're going to end up with a surveillance state. Um, and I apologize, you're very intelligent, but I can't say surveillance. Uh, it's just one of, I can't, I never have been able to do it. So, um, is, is it inevitable that we end up, you know, should we really be cautious in our liberal democratic capitalistic societies that we avoid ending up like China with all of this different technology that turns into a Black Mirror episode? Sure. So one of the things that right now differentiates us from a uh, situation that's occurring in China is that we have what's called siloed information. So in China, they're able to unsilo information by getting different, otherwise disparate data points and combining them all together. So for instance, think not just I can track where you went, but also being able to track what you buy, who you're around, and various other data points that can then create a much more clear picture uh, of the individual. So essentially, it's profiling at the individual level rather than just group profiling. So more dangerous in a way. Here in the U.S., obviously, we have a lot more consumer options uh, and our companies are not nearly as completely embedded with the government as they are in China. So again, the difference between having um, a a one-party government that runs all of your companies, essentially, or can shut them down at will versus a much more liberal order that we currently enjoy here in America. Now, you may have spoken too soon because you are here to talk about a new lawsuit that was filed. Um, you know, two epidemiologists, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and Dr. Martin Koldorf. Uh, you've probably heard Jay Bhattacharya on the Paradox podcast here on the We Are Libertarians Network. He uh, had the Barrington Declaration, I believe it was, at the beginning of COVID and was um, it took COVID seriously. And said, this is what we uh, need to do. We need to let it run its course. I'm wildly paraphrasing. We need to sort of let it run its course. And if you remember Sweden kind of at that period, that was, uh, I guess, in the vein, right? That is much different than what social media wanted you to say. 
Uh, and they are apparently a part of a new lawsuit with the New Civil Liberties Alliance um, in a filed by the states of Missouri and Louisiana in a U.S. district court against the Biden administration. And I'm reading the lead of your article in the Daily Caller, which we will link to. And it alleges the government suppressed speech by coercing social media companies to censor content over the past several years. Not really surprised, but give us a little bit more background on this lawsuit. Sure. So the lawsuit was originally filed, like you mentioned, by the attorney generals of Missouri and Louisiana. So it was in August that the New Civil Liberties Alliance, NCLA, joined that lawsuit on behalf of the two epidemiologists you referenced. So that's sort of the lay of that land. It was filed by the AGs, and then later the NCLA came in to also allege, again, this coercive nature of government action in relation to social media companies, essentially saying that government was engaging in state action and thus uh, these restrictions on speech amounted to a violation of the First Amendment rather than simply a company saying they didn't want to platform speech that would not amount to, you know, a violation of the First Amendment. Yeah, I'm a big uh, Michael Lewis fan, and this podcast is fantastic, but he did an episode on misinformation and Dr. Bhattacharya and the Barrington Declaration and how dangerous it was, and how Stanford shouldn't let these guys work, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so they've kind of had a little bit of a target on their back from the beginning, because they weren't like um, Robert Kennedy Jr. level, like, or, or, or kind of on that end of the spectrum. They were sort of the smart conservatives' choice of pushing back on COVID restrictions. And so they were really targeted by social media companies, and if you talked about them, it was, uh, you know, this is not in your article. I'm adding the context for our listener, but I remember reading the Barrington Declaration and, and seeing this kind of get banned at the time. How do we know the government had anything to do with some of that censorship that I saw in real time? Sure. So the, the there were troves of emails that came out in regard to this lawsuit. So following the lawsuit, a lot of emails came out that showed how collaborative the relationship was between federal agents. Uh, and to be clear, I don't just mean like FBI agents. I mean, agents of the federal government across various uh, agencies, including the CDC, the Health and Human Services, White House. Uh, and also uh, there were individuals from the FBI involved in collaborating with these uh, these companies regarding their content moderation policies, which it is broader than COVID. I think that's important for listeners to understand, right? I mean, you recall on the Joe Rogan podcast when Mark Zuckerberg mentioned the FBI being involved in contacting Facebook regarding the Hunter Biden laptop story. Uh, and it was a little unclear whether he was a little cagey about whether they directly mentioned that story or simply said be on the alert, alert for Russian disinformation. But regardless, the point being that these entities of the federal government are becoming very involved with social media companies in relation to content moderation across the board. And by that, I mean, it's not just limited to one piece of information, although that would also be troubling. So there is still, it's not exactly clear the extent to which these agents were attempting to coerce or, uh, influence the content moderation decisions of these firms, which is why the lawsuit is ongoing and continued discovery will be coming out, including depositions of various uh, actors within the federal government who are heavily involved. Yeah, there's there's a weird thing that has happened. I mean, when I back when I was your age, Leslie, uh, it was during the Iraq war and you couldn't trust the man. You couldn't trust the government. They were lying to you about yellow cake. 
And now those same people, like Hillary Clinton, are saying, you can only trust the government to verify a source. And so much of journalism and, and fact-checking has become, we asked an official government agency their opinion, and that is what we're running with as the truth. Like, the CDC, for so many businesses, became the default. Well, we're just going to go with what the the CDC recommends for vaccines, for instance, uh, because it's just easier. And we're just going to default to it. That seems to me a very troubling trend. I mean, if you're using the government's word as a fact-checking mechanism, that seems to be against the spirit of the First Amendment, which is, in my mind, meant to check the government, meant to check power. Sure. There's a couple of, in my view, a couple of troubling problems that are sort of running parallel to one another. There's one, the cultural issue you're describing. So let's say Let's hypothetically say that the government had had no collaboration, no communication with these firms, and it was just becoming a deeply ingrained cultural norm in various institutions, whether that's media or other major platforms, uh, to just trust what the government says and to really only platform that which the government believes to be accurate. Now, let's again, that's in a hypothetical world where the government's not involved uh, in the is not really taking an active role. And making these decisions, that's just a cultural norm. I think that would be troubling, to your point, because it it does give, I think, too much credence to the government to be able to ar- determine the truth, determine what should should or should not be aired, and, and what opinions are and are not normative. So I would agree with that. Now, another problem that's running at the same time as that is I do think there's probably a degree of a cultural element here, right? A lot of individuals that run these technological firms are likely to probably have political leanings that more closely mirror perhaps those um, of the individuals who also run bureaucratic government agencies. Like that very likely could be true. But at the same time, you also have a very troubling uh, connection between government and firms in the sense that it's not as as though these are in completely separate universes and they don't speak to one another. Uh, you have, you know, the government has a lot of regulatory power over some of these firms and, for instance, has threatened Facebook, now Meta, with antitrust action over the years, numerous times. So you have a dynamic now where it's, they're sort of blended and it's unclear the extent to which the actions of government agents are causing media companies to create content moderation policies or to remove content or change content in ways that they otherwise would not have without any collaborative uh, communication between the firms and the government. Yeah, I think it's incredibly powerful when when Ron Wyden, who is head of like a technology committee, a senator, says, we need to take a look at this. Or when Joe Biden says, you know, well, Elon Musk, uh, these can I mean, so I'm watching the press conference after Joe Biden's win. And, and maybe this is a good illustration of exactly what you're talking about. You tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, a, 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 a journalist stands up and says, are you troubled with, uh, do you think that Elon Musk is a national security risk? No other context just floats the idea that somehow Elon Musk is a, like he just read it on Twitter and decided to ask the president about it. And the president like knew that it, I probably shouldn't answer this, but YOLO, uh, they'll walk it back tomorrow, uh, and says, yeah, I think there might be some troubling things that we ought to look into when it with regards to Elon Musk. Maybe there are. I have no idea. I have no further information based on the these two talking, but now I've just got the impression that maybe Elon Musk is a danger to national security and ought to be looked into. 
when the president of the United States says, maybe we ought to look into this guy for as a national security risk without evidence or like context, um, that seems to me like a really problematic thing. You're not wrong. This is exactly what I was trying to highlight, you know, in this article is that the government feels very emboldened to push companies towards making decisions that further government um, efforts, essentially. They they feel very comfortable doing this. I mean, you heard it from former press sec- secretary Jen Psaki, who felt very comfortable saying, you know, we need to essentially we communicate directly with these companies often. Here are the uh, disinformation dozen you should target you know, for misinformation on platforms, they feel quite comfortable to some degree airing this out to the public. Now, it's clear there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes than had ever met the public gaze. But it's hard to imagine a universe where this kind of a story hit in, let's say, 2004 and wasn't, you know, national news (laughs) across all platforms for I don't know, weeks. And now it sort of hits. And frankly, it's a little bit of a ripple. I think there's a lot of consumers and Americans who have no idea uh, that this story even broke because it hasn't received a lot of mainstream attention. So there's, a again, a nor- it's becoming much more normative for government to feel comfortable doing this and for there to be few consequences to their conduct. And also for government to feel comfortable Uh, putting a lot of pressure on private actors, but to receive very little critical feedback themselves, right? How much pressure is being put on on government agents to maybe understand what some of their corrupt actions have led to and what that's caused, right? You don't really see a a lot of that while you're, you know, simultaneously seeing a lot of pressure on, on private companies. And where this really becomes dangerous, and I think it's important for your listeners to understand, is that we need a functioning distinction between what occurs in the private marketplace and what occurs in the public like, government arena. I was literally just things- about to ask you to, like, uh, Trump and Biden act as political pundits. And I think it's easy for people to kind of see the feed and just get it all jumbled together and lose the distinction between what Sean Hannity says and what the president of the United States says, what a news agency says, and what the White House says, and why is that different? Why is there a distinction? What is the philosophical underpinning between those two? Because that's essential for understanding this topic. Exactly. So the government really has a monopoly on the use of force. So that's where it's extremely important to understand what the government is saying that they can and can't do or what actions they can and can't take and what the media is saying, right? The media doesn't have a monopoly on force. Uh, They ideally should be there to push back against those in power, particularly government agents, to ensure that our rights are protected and that you know, to hold the the feet of those in power to the fire, right? That's ideally what their role is. Now, you can certainly dispute whether that's <laughs> the media landscape we currently are in reflects that to any degree. Um, but that's ideally what you would have is the, um, you know, journalists really ensuring that politicians are being held accountable and uh, the public also being informed by those journalists, right? So the, the, the work of the journalists helps inform the public as to you know, who they can and cannot trust in government and who they may or may not want to vote for. But when you have um, this blurring of the the roles of government agents, right? So those who are, whose job it is to um, engage in efforts to further the government's agenda, whatever agency um, may or may not be wanting to accomplish, th- right? The agencies are wanting to accomplish certain goals. So, so the end of government agents is 
the purpose of government agents is to act in furtherance of those goals, right? Uh, and you need to have a strong distinction between those government entities and private actors. And by private actors, I mean anyone who exists in the private marketplace that the owners of companies, uh, so that would be like Facebook would be an example of that, right? You don't want those functions to merge. It's really dangerous if you have government agents and private companies who essentially act as if they're one entity. That's not what um, ideal, that's not what capitalism or uh, really looks like, right? That's yeah. that's a, a perverted form of that. Yeah, it's a weird function of polarization, I think, because I noticed there there were people who would literally, re- I would rather be wrong and be proudly wrong in public than say the truth because I don't want people to think I'm a Republican. Like there was a sort of a weird tendency during COVID especially, but it, it sort of still exists where the media, the tech companies, like they didn't want to like give in or give an inch, it's like a pride thing. And and the right does it too. It's not just a, a function because the right, you know, like the Daily Wire is always going to have Ron DeSantis's back. You know, the, like these major media outlets are always going to have the White House's back because they're really positioning themselves against the other side as opposed. So like the, the line has shifted from government versus, you know, private versus public and holding those two sides accountable to left versus right. And that, to me, seems to be a much more dangerous situation where we're programming to own the libs or own the cons as opposed to protecting people's rights. Sure. It's it's an erosion of, the, of civil liberties, really, and a commitment to civil liberties and a commitment to the underpinnings of self-governance itself, which defines the American way of life. So it's very troubling in that respect. There's also, I think, really important to understand a now an incentive structure among some technological innovators to innovate with the goal of obtaining a contract from the government. Uh, for selling surveillance services. So this would be things like I mentioned earlier, uh, services could include things like smart cities where you're blanketing an entire city and really highly developed technological cameras that then feed to law enforcement. That would be an example of that. Uh, and then there was, of course, the controversy that came out of Banjo, which is or Utah. So Banjo was a Utah-based company that had a contract with the attorney general's office. It went defunct due to some findings about the um, it's very troubling findings about the owner of that company and his ties to neo-Nazi groups. But that being said, it's the incentive structure that still exists. And what I mean by that is that as technologies become uh, much better at surveilling, so that would be using things like biometrics, your voice, um, or other features of, the, of human identity to track and identify individuals, uh, it's going to be easy for government to see that as a very powerful tool uh, when fighting crime or uh, in other ways investigating criminal offenses or civil offenses for that matter. So for instance, Clearview AI uh, has a a database of just billions of images that they've pulled from essentially the public commons of the internet. And they now have that in a database and they have, of course, contracts with government officials. So this incentive structure to innovate towards surveilling because, right, again, it would be firms, private firms, who see the value and the of a partnership with the government rather than the consumer. I think you people need to understand that there's an incentive structure there, and high-dollar partnerships could essentially allow a company to corner a market uh, on certain surveillance um, 
services. So that could be facial recognition, a, a la Clearview AI, or it could down the road be other types of biometrics. Again, that could include your voice. You can look to China for examples of the type of applications you can have from uh, these surveillance methods that essentially stem from technology. Uh, and that's, again, I'm not saying we're by any means anywhere close to, to looking like the type of surveillance state that China is, but you also don't want to slow walk into that. And I think the public needs to understand what uh, the in- underlying incentives are that drive some of those uh, problems that could arise in the future. Convenience seems to be the big driver of a lot of this. It's just easier if I can scan my face at the airport as opposed you know, I got, I have stuff in my pockets and I don't have to get my ID. I just scan my face, you know, but where did they get those pictures? Who's who is that you being used against? Where does that stuff go? It's sort of the argument of where if people at the beginning of TSA hadn't thrown a fit about those body scans, I would rather not have to do the thing, you know, with my arms up. But they were legit taking x-ray scans and there were a lot of articles of attractive women and attractive men being put through these things so people could get extra it's a serious privacy issue. Now it's just like green blocks. Um, but that's sort of the check and balance, right? Um, but you didn't have kind of the amount of siloed media then. How, how can we be a good, uh, protester (laughs) and, and really try to persuade companies to respect privacy or not work with the government? I mean, what do you, what, what can I do? Uh, Really give me some hope. Uh, Sure. So I think that we as consumers can absolutely value our own privacy and pay attention to what companies are working with the government uh, in any capacity and to to be aware of that. So, for instance, Ring, one of Amazon's subsidiaries that they sell uh, these essentially it's home security systems and they they do have partnerships with law enforcement. So you can you can look into those kind of things and try to to find the more privacy centric um, companies that don't engage in that kind of conduct. And of course, things like end to end encrypted applications, think signal for messaging or uh, proton mail for email, ensure your privacy in a way that some of these other applications do not. So we obviously still have choices here in America, whereas say in China, they, they don't, right? Like you essentially have your one um, platform for, for different types of either communication or other forms of information sharing, uh, including, of course, internet. So we have significantly more options over here in America, and I think we should take advantage of that and remain aware of what companies are working heavily with the government and which ones are not. Uh, And I I understand that it's going to be a bumpy road out of it in the sense that right now, like someone like you may not be able to just cut ties with YouTube. Let's say you're concerned that YouTube is too uh, collaborative with the government. Well, if that's how you're, you know, making your living or earning a living, it's, it's not necessarily as simple as just immediately moving from A to B platform-wise. I think we've seen with tw- Twitter... Yeah, I mean, Twitter... Sorry, the delay, I didn't mean to cut you off. But <laughs> I think we've seen with Twitter and Facebook, for instance, I mean, a year ago, the left and the right were saying, we need to have regulation. These companies are too big to fail. We have to use... And now, Amazon just lost a trillion dollars... Facebook just fired 11,000 people because they're collapsing. Twitter, I think, I don't know if Elon's running it on purpose, but he couldn't make any of the right decisions if he tried the last three weeks. But um, So when you move to what's next, 
choose what's next as a privacy-based option. I mean, DuckDuckGo, I saw a billboard today for it. Harry, Harry on our show has been talking about that for years as a more private solution to search. And that has really caught on because people just gave it a market. Exactly. It's it's the concept of of doing what the free market does best, which is to say, if you value this, it may take uh, you know time and energy to find alternatives. And I understand that it's not going to happen overnight. But the reality is, um, the solution isn't going to emerge overnight, right? And I think that to the extent that we solve this problem, it's to keep our eyes laser focused on the government. We don't want the government to be co-opting private databases. So this is a really important point that when you build out these private databases, they essentially become a powerful resource. Anywhere where there's a lot of digital information that speaks to one specific human behavior, whether that's where you're going, um, where you spend a lot of time, um, or other things that, again, speak to your habits, it it becomes something that is easy for investigators to look at when they're uh, investigating crimes or wanting to, for instance, with government wanting to control information, right? If there's a certain number of people on Twitter, the government's going to go, this is a great place to go to try to control information flow (laughs) because that's where people go to gather information. Therefore, I want to control whether misinformation is going up on that platform, right? So it's, it's understanding how the nature of that works, right? How when you when a lot of information goes to one one place in the digital sphere, it's, it's sort of turning that type of information into a resource that it otherwise may not have, you know, be innocuous or have no power. All right. Shameless self-promotion time, Leslie. Oh, th- thank you. Sure. So I'm on Twitter at Leslie at Corbly Leslie, and I'll be actually also building out a Rumble profile in the coming weeks. That will be especially kicking off in December. So check that out for short videos ranging from about 30 seconds to, you know, four, maybe three to four minutes uh, max. I think that's a great, I was almost mentioned Rumble as like the YouTube alternative because that's sort of caught on. It has. And for good reason. They they really, again, you're looking for which pro- which companies really value your privacy and take that into account. It seems that Rumble does. They also seem to have a, I'm not very familiar with the company. I'm, I've, I honestly just started my profile and have not even published anything there yet. I'm still trying to learn the platform and the lay of the land, but they do seem to have a fairly interesting model uh, for monetization where um, you have several different licensing options you can choose from. So that's, for instance, one reason I haven't put out any videos yet as I'm deciding on which licensing option I would like for my content. So that's another place you'll be able to find me. My handle handle will be the same at Corbley Leslie. Of course, you can follow my work on Libertas at libertas.org. And I also have an active LinkedIn account with just follow my name. You can feel free to follow along. And I post all of my content on my website, which is just lesliecorbley.com. Made that real simple for everyone. I publish all of my interviews, articles, and any other content I produce goes right up on that website. All right, Leslie Corbley, thank you so much for joining me here on the show. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening. If you learned something, please share this episode with your friends. It's uh, short, sweet, and to the point, and we appreciate you helping us grow. Thank you so much, and we will see you again soon.